Thank you all for being here. Uh, it is definitely a great honor to sit in this seat and be with all of you. I would like to extend uh, my great gratitude to uh, my teacher, Kanjin Gain Godwin Roshi, for this opportunity uh, to continue the work of my practice. It is my feeling that I'm here today to share my practice with you and hope that this will be some encouragement to you in your own practice, which is the most important thing. A few weeks ago, I met with Galen Roshi to discuss this Dharma talk because I hoped to work through some of the difficulty I was having with putting the talk together. And I expressed to her that I was having some difficulty finding something useful to say, some useful topic. My feeling is that the further along I go in my practice, uh, the less I have to say about it. So while this really isn't a problem in general, it becomes a problem when you have to say something. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really tremendously helpful to meet with Galen Roshi. And as we discussed the root of my predicament, she very skillfully guided me to see a number of very subtle connections and a Dharma talk sort of started to appear in the space between us. I was really amazed to see the various threads in our conversations start being woven together like a beautiful tapestry. Fortified by our conversation, I left the Dokasan room feeling very confident that I had the outlines of an excellent talk ready to be fleshed out and polished over the coming weeks. My mistake then <laughs> was not to strike while the iron was hot, as they say. What I probably should have done was to jot down some notes <laughs> to preserve the scaffolding of the talk before time passed. What happened, on the other hand, was that I put that task off for a day and then another day and another day. And it wasn't long before the feeling of the talk had evaporated like morning dew on a hot Houston summer day. <laughs> I can still recall some of the ideas, but they're lifeless and disjointed, dry skeletal remains bleached by the desert sun. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> Fortunately, though, I still have the original sort of seedling of the idea, and it occurred to me I could talk about that. So here it goes. Uh, lucky for me, Zen is a religion which is essentially built and founded upon not knowing. We have a great tradition of not knowing. Arguably, this is our primary tradition. So I should probably start by talking about that. And to do that, I uh, decided to draw from a classic Zen koan or teaching story from a collection called The Book of Serenity or The, the Book of Equanimity, depending on the translation. That collection was compiled by a Zen master named Hongji Zhengjue. Apologies to my pronunciation. Uh, and uh, it's actually the same person that tied in Leighton's book about uh, just last week. Hongji was a proponent of our kind of meditation, uh, just sitting, which in Japanese is called Shikantaza. So the story I'm gonna share is case 20 from the Book of Serenity. 
which goes like this. The monk Fayan was going on pilgrimage. Master Dizan asked him, where are you going? And Fayan said, on pilgrimage. And Dizan asked, what is pilgrimage? And Fayan said, I don't know. And Dizan said, not knowing is most intimate. So what are we talking about? What is it to not know? Um, that's, the, that's the super important uh, point, and it's central to our understanding and our practice, but this can be a little bit confusing. Uh, the important thing for me to keep in mind is that not knowing is not the same as ignorance or as apathy. One of the core teachings of the Buddha is that there are three primary roots of suffering in the mind, greed, hatred, and aversion. Uh, greed, hatred, or, or, or aversion uh, is one thing. And then delusion or ignorance. Uh, delusion and ignorance is, is almost, to me, it's sort of the primary problem because it's from our misunderstanding of our place in this world, of the nature of reality, that then greed and, uh, and aversion or hatred arise. So it's important to, to me to clarify that not knowing does not mean to be ignorant of something or to prevent something from coming to the mind. Uh, when I, I, I'm one of several people, uh, I'm very fortunate to be one of several people here that gets to uh, help lead a little introduction to Zen meditation. Uh, every month. And um, it's very common when I speak with people about meditation, and maybe you've had this experience with your friends or family that they'll tell you, well, I tried it, but I can't do it. And when I ask about what they mean, they'll say something like, I can't stop thinking, or I can't get my mind to be empty. And there does seem to be an idea in popular culture that the goal of meditation is to empty the mind so that we can feel serene. And it might be nice if that were to happen. And that's okay. But that's not our, our practice in Zen. I recently led a class where we read and discussed the book, Opening the Hand of Thought, which was written by a very intelligent and skillful, skillful teacher, Kosho Uchiyama. And in this book, he tries to put to rest this idea that our meditation should be trying to quiet our minds. <laughs> he says that much as our stomachs secrete digestive enzymes, our mind secretes thoughts. And this is its natural state of being. Uh, what we can do is allow the thoughts to come and go on their own and then gently guide our awareness back to the present moment. Uh, my teachers teacher's teacher, Shunryu Suzuki, had a great way of putting this. He once said, in Zazen, leave your front door and your back door open. Allow your thoughts to come and go. Just don't serve them tea. <laughs> Suzuki Roshi is he's sort of famous for his approach to not knowing, which he calls beginner's mind. And in fact, there's a book of his talks titled Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. <laughs> And in San Francisco, where Suzuki Roshi founded the American branch of our school, 
The official Japanese temple name for the San Francisco Zen Center is Hoshinji, Beginner's Mind Temple. In the preface of his book, Suzuki says, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. <coughs> and then Suzuki gives a number of examples by way of explanation. And the essence of this teaching is that the point of our meditation is to encounter everything with openness, uh, with fresh eyes, without prejudgment. <coughs> to experience things as we meet them like this, uh, in my estimation, is probably what the Buddha meant when he talked about right mindfulness. To experience our sense perceptions as they arise, prior to concepts, prior to name, language, and everything that follows. And actually, this is just the way everything actually is. So, uh, humor me for a moment. Imagine yourself like, as a prehistoric person perhaps like our faraway ancestors hundreds of thousands of years ago, which is just, that's just mind-blowing. But we have ancestors then. So imagine being a prehistoric person before language. How did they encounter the world? Of course, they undoubtedly still had ideas and thoughts and concepts. But just imagine what it would be like if we could occasionally encounter our worlds for the first time, which I actually have a funny story about. Uh, which some of you may have heard before, so bear with me. It was a few years ago during a, a retreat led by my teacher's teacher, Tension Rep. Anderson Roshi. And during that retreat, it was maybe day two or three, we were sitting uh, for the morning meal in the formal ritual known as Oriyoki. The way the food is served in Oriyoki is that everyone is served before we start eating, so there's plenty of time to just sit. So there are three dishes served at these meals, one for each of our bowls. We have three bowls. And in the morning, we'll typically have something like oatmeal or yogurt, or sometimes nuts or fruits. Of course, it's actually really good food. So as uh, the server came to me with the, the second dish, the second bowl, I noticed that it was a large, deep pot. Usually pots like that are reserved for soups. So I wondered what could be in the pot. When the server approached, I bowed and held up my bowl. I don't remember if it was he or she, but they dipped the ladle into the pot and brought it out, pouring the soup into my bowl. And I was struck by a certain curiosity now. How unusual for the Tenzo, that's the head cook, to serve a soup at breakfast. <laughs> I noticed there, there was no steam coming off of the soup from the bowl. So this must be some kind of a cold soup, like, like a gazpacho or something like that. My mind churned over and over itself as we finished the ritual of the chanting and receiving food until it was time to eat. I dipped my spoon into the bowl and I took a sip. And I confirmed it was cold, as, as I suspected. But the taste was very unusual. There was like a brightness to it something almost lemony or citrus. I took another few sips before it hit me like a ton of bricks. Orange juice. <laughs> Orange juice. So now at the time I was still working ostensibly as a detective. So let me just say. <laughs> let me just say there are a few other clues I missed. <laughs> 
namely that the menu for the meal was posted as it usually is on the message board for all to see. But the aftermath of that experience is that I really got the chance to see what it might look like to not know about something. And of course, in this case, even though I didn't know what it was I was eating right away, my mind was still there with all these knowing thoughts, liquid, cold, citrus, like the name orange juice, those, those are also names and concepts. But in my mind, they ex sort of exist about one layer back. But before those names, before even liquid and cold and citrus, there's, there's just the experience itself. There's just life. <clears throat> so we can actually practice this beginner's mind, this not knowing mind, and not just with our senses, but also with our mind. In a few weeks, uh, teacher Kokio Henkel will be leading a retreat, teaching retreat here and out of our retreat center in Chapel Hill. He is an excellent teacher um, from experience testifying to that. And he uh, teaches, he has an interesting method, I, I think it's an excellent method, to examine our minds um, by asking ourselves three questions. The first is, is awareness present? We can ask all. I'll steal from Tokyo Henkel for a moment. So you can ask yourselves right now, uh, is awareness present? And if you find that awareness is present, uh, the second question is, what is it that is aware of awareness? And then the third question is, are there any edges or boundaries? That's where I get stuck. They're good practice, good practice questions. So I'm not going to delve into the teaching, but at a minimum, I think it's a really useful exercise to encounter our minds in this way. And you can just use that any anytime. If you're like me and it takes you a long time to really wake up and get going in the morning, you might take for my green tea. <laughs> That's good. Art restoration doesn't work out. We've got a good <laughs> If it takes you a long time to really wake up and get going in the morning, that first part of the morning can be a great time to observe your mind. It actually, it can. Um, keep in mind that the purpose of doing this observation isn't to draw any conclusions about your mind. And if any thoughts or conclusions come up, that's fine. But just like Suzuki Roshi would say, just don't serve them tea. Just let them come and go like the morning breeze when there is a morning breeze. And if anyone asks what you're doing, you can tell them that you're going around on pilgrimage. 